0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast featuring two gentlemen who love to hear themselves talk and will speak more in a minute than they'll stand to in a month. This week, we'll be trying, and probably failing, to bring something new to one of the most famous works in all of Western literature, Romeo and Juliet. I'm Will Quinn.
1: And I'm James Smith.
0: This is episode 12, Woe is Mio and Juliet. What is the story? Well, there's this pirate. In truth i've not written a word romeo romeo is italian always in and out of love yes that's good until he meets
1: ethel do you think the daughter of his enemy the daughter of his enemy his best friend is killed in a duel by ethel's brother or something his name is mercutio, mercutio. good name
0: will they're waiting for you yes i'm coming
1: good with yours, kid. I thought your play was for Burbage. This is a different one.
0: James, I'm pretty sure that Shakespeare is drawing on some earlier material for this play. Do you know anything about that?
1: Well, I personally do not know a ton about that, but Wikipedia knows a lot about it. <laughs> so basically what I've gleaned is that Romeo and Juliet, first of all, for sure, is not an original, at least... Obviously, Shakespeare's text is his original work, but he is not creating the story out of whole cloth. His primary or first source uh, was a poem called The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, which was published in 1562 by a poet named Arthur Brooke. Brooke, I'm just going to literally quote from the the Wikipedia page here. Brooke is reported to have translated it from an Italian novella by Matteo Bandello. There's also a theory that has Brooks's poem as being Uh, taken from a French adaptation of that same Matteo Bandello novella. And then, of course, in addition to that, Romeo and Juliet is pretty clearly drawing on a poetic tradition that reaches back into antiquity, and we'll be talking about some of those themes Uh, When we get into the discussion. However, before that, Will, can you kick us off by giving us a little plot summary?
0: Against the backdrop of fair Verona in northern Italy, the play opens with petty insults between servants and minor kinsmen of the feuding Montague and Capulet families that erupts into a violent brawl at the instigation of Tybalt, a Capulet who embodies his family's hatred of their enemies. The prince of the city, irritated and unnerved by yet another breach of the peace between these hotheads, steps in before blood can be spilled to warn the lords of both houses that whoever does so again will be executed. The leaders of both families, somewhat removed from the actions of their foot soldiers, are focused on other things. Lord Montague wants to know where his son, the depressed night owl Romeo, is gone and asks his friend and cousin Benvolio to figure out what's going on with him, which Benvolio does in short order. Romeo is in love with a Capulet girl named Rosaline, who has ignored his extravagant efforts to woo her. Meanwhile, Lord Capulet entertains Count Paris, a young gentleman in need of a wife who is intrigued by the prospect of Juliet, Capulet's daughter. Amid some rather half-hearted objections that the 14-year-old Juliet is too young to marry, Capulet invites Paris to a masked ball where he can meet any number of Capulet girls, though he and his wife are secretly intrigued by the prospect— Romeo, Benvolio, and their salacious friend Mercutio, a relative of the prince, intercept an invitation to the ball and disguise themselves, hoping to seek out Rosaline. Romeo, being the dependable sort, meets Juliet and immediately falls in love, forgetting Rosaline altogether, much to his friend's amusement, and provoking Tybalt, who sees through his disguise and is stopped from killing him by Lord Capulet, who doesn't want to clean up the mess and thinks well of Romeo, despite his family ties. Juliet seeks out her nurse to identify the masked stranger who is spitting such good game at her and learns that her newfound love is in fact a Montague. After the party. <laughs> After the party, Romeo sneaks into the courtyard of the Capulet estate while Juliet laments Romeo's heritage because their family feud makes their love impossible. Romeo then reveals himself, and after some of the most famous dialogue in Shakespeare, the two agree to get married secretly by Friar Lawrence, a local holy man who wants to use their love to heal the division between the two warring clans. They get married in his monkly cell. In what has to be the most disastrous post-wedding cocktail hour of all time, Tybalt seeks out Romeo, who is with his friends after the secret ceremony, and challenges him to a duel. Romeo refuses, since he now considers Tybalt a family member. Tybalt insults Romeo's honor, and Mercutio, annoyed by Tybalt's effrontery and Romeo's meekness, throws down. Romeo tries to intervene, but like the ponce that he is, only succeeds in allowing Tybalt to fatally stab his friend, who curses both their houses as he bleeds to death. A plague on both your houses! Romeo stabs Tybalt in response and flees, leaving Benvolio to plead Romeo's case before the prince. The prince banishes Romeo, enraged all the more now that the Montague-Capulet row has claimed the life of one of his kinsmen. Meanwhile, Romeo and Juliet consummate their marriage, but are deeply depressed by Romeo's banishment. Friar Lawrence secrets Romeo away to Mantua, planning to help bring him back when the situation blows over. Juliet's woes are compounded, however, by Lord Capulet's insistence that she marry Count Paris the day after next. Juliet visits Lawrence for help, and he offers her a potion that will put her into a death-like trance for about two days, enough time for him to summon Romeo to rejoin her in the Capulet tomb to escape back to Mantua as man and wife. Juliet takes the potion, and amid much grief in House Capulet, is laid to rest in their mausoleum. Lawrence then dispatches a rider to pass the word to Romeo about the plot. But in one of literature's great cases of miscommunication, the messenger doesn't reach him in time because of an outbreak of the plague, and instead, Romeo learns of Juliet's death from his servant, Balthazar. He buys some lethal poison and rides back to Verona, intending to commit suicide next to Juliet's body. In the crypt, he runs into Paris, who is also grieving Juliet in his own way. They end up fighting, and Paris goes down for the count, pun very much intended. Romeo pounds the poison and dies. Juliet then wakes up, finds Romeo dead next to her, much to her confusion, then takes his dagger and stabs herself, joining him in death. The families then all gather at the tomb with the prince and friar Lawrence, who has some explaining to do. The family's grief brings them closer together, ending the feud, and they pledge to reconcile to honor their dead
1: children. Thank you, Will. That was a fabulous, fabulous plot summary. The first thing that I wanted to talk about with this one is, I mean, so it, it is a subject that has to do with the play, but it's a little bit of a wider subject because now obviously this play is one of the most famous works in Western literature, as we said before. However, I am also struck by the fact that though this is the highest or the most famous embodiment of this type of literature, actually it falls into a certain Genre, right, of tragic love stories that have kind of an enduring, long lasting, and very deep appeal. And, you know, I think you see it with starting in antiquity with things like, you know, Troilus and Cressida. Yes, there was a Shakespeare play about Troilus and Cressida, but also that is an ancient story. There's a, a lot of the stories in Ovid's Metamorphoses. I believe Pyramus and Thisbe is an Ovid story, mm-hmm. Dido and Aeneas of course is another tragic love story. And uh, then moving forward in time, you know, in the more modern era, we have Doctor Zhivago, which was briefly the most Doctor Zhivago was briefly the highest-grossing film of all time. Titanic, of course, is probably the most the most instantly recognizable version of this to contemporary audiences. So there's something about this type of story that clearly resonates with people in a very deep way. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about why that might be. So do you have any thoughts on that?
0: <laughs> yeah. So I guess I would I would say, and that's, you know, you, you've brought up a lot of historical examples and parallels of stories like this, and that's almost just leaving aside the sort of legacy of Romeo and Juliet, which has filtered into stories around the world and obviously everything from West side story to Romeo must die to every sort of genre take you can imagine on the story has been done. So there is clearly an enduring and universal appeal that maybe goes beyond just the immediate contents of the play. It's something that's cross cultural it's cross sort of time. I, yeah. I, I
1: mean, I, I also think of opera often has stories in this, in this vein, Obviously, Tristan and Isolde and sort of medieval romances, most prominently Arthurian legend, you know, Arthur and Guinevere. Sorry, I'm just, I'm now I'm just riffing on other examples of this. But uh, yeah, it feels to me very pervasive.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's there's obviously potent themes that almost everybody, I think, can relate to in some way, obviously with romantic love. And this story is marking, I think, a shift in a way of how love and romance are conceived of as you're moving more into the modern era. That's, I think, the historical moment in which Shakespeare is writing. But I think it's a theme that runs throughout history in that people fall in love with one another irrespective of what's convenient sometimes. And I think that that's true even in eras where marriage was much more of a financial arrangement or political arrangement, as the case may be. But there's something irrepressible about the human spirit that seeks out and falls in love, sometimes with very inconvenient people, for the the situation around you. And so the idea of doomed love, love that's based on something that appears to be authentic and, and real, despite all of these constraints, I, I can see why that would appeal to people, because almost everybody has a story of some type of uh, love affair or infatuation, you know, that they had that didn't work out. And so Star-Crossed Lovers sort of fits into that, where you had something real with somebody, but it just couldn't work out for reasons that are sort of beyond one's control. So I think that's a very universal theme in a lot of ways. I don't know. that's, That's sort of one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is the feud itself lends itself to a very dramatic telling, And it's a story about community, it's a story about politics, it's a story about families sort of warring, and that also kind of fits in and and lends a lot of the drama to this sort of structure of the story.
1: That gets at one element I was thinking about with this, which is that to go into a very maybe crass way of looking at it, and this is looking at it very much from like the Hollywood producing kind of Mm -hmm. theory... You know, Hollywood uh, is obsessed. I, I don't know, Will, if you're familiar with this term, but in Hollywood, there's this obsession with the idea of the four quadrant movie, mm-hmm. you know, which is a movie that can appeal to both men and women. And that's two, you know, that those are like maybe the y-axis of the quadrant and then the x-axis being age groups, mm-hmm. right? So can it appeal to young men, old men, young women and older women? And I think these stories fall into that vain in the sense that on the one hand, there's, you know, there tends to be something for everyone. You know, if you're, I think about like the medieval romance side of things, right? And you have, on the one hand, you have the love story, which stereotypically is going to be more appealing to the female audience members. Mm-hmm. But it's also, and I to be clear, I'm saying stereotypically, not.
0: <laughs> yes, not, not in fact, necessarily. Not,
1: uh, not normatively. But then also you've got the nightly action and, you know, and men trading blows and that might be more appealing to younger men. You know, so, so I think it has these various story elements that correctly or incorrectly, stereotypically or truly have a, a broader, right? There's a broader range of actions and events in these stories, sort of by nature, as opposed to just an action story or just a, a love comedy, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then as a... Part of that and sort of going to a more maybe aesthetic or philosophical view, I think also these stories feel like they have a little bit more import because, you know, whereas a romantic comedy tends to be more about individuals working out their own hangups in a Mm -hmm. way, right? Like usually the romantic comedy is not about structural barriers that are preventing people from being together, but is about miscommunication. Right. And people needing to discover that they actually like each other and that the other person likes them. And so it's like a little bit of this dance. Yes. Whereas I think in the tragic love story, it's more about, yes, it's about the love of the two people for each other, but it's also about the people's place in society and what society's mm-hmm. expectations are. And I think crucially, I mean, I mean, with Shakespeare, I think it's pretty clear, you may disagree with me, but I think it's pretty clear that Shakespeare views the feud is sort of a silly way. You know, we never even know what the origin of the feud is. But the feud fundamentally is just a thing that's preventing these people from getting together. Yes. And that's also raising the stakes, right? So it's like, it it sort of allows greater emotional investment. I do think on the other hand, you know, these tragic love stories can also be about, they, they can also be read much more negatively where the love story becomes a destructive force. Yes. You know, and I think you see that in Arthurian legend, I think, would maybe be the highest version of that, where the forbidden love between Lancelot and Guinevere is like, they can't really help it, but also their love destroys this glorious kingdom, you know? Right. So I think it it feels like it has more cosmic stakes than just what's happening between the two people. And it has to do with social constructs. And the obligations that we owe to each other as well as the obligations we owe to ourselves. Well, and it's
0: it's interesting you say that because when I was reading um, the play and— the sort of scholarly essay in the edition that I have beforehand, they point out that Brooke's poem in some way, the the source material that Shakespeare is working off, it was more of a warning in some ways of this type of relationship tearing society asunder. I mean, there's apparently ambivalence and ambiguity in that poem, but it's much more of a negative, Romeo is kind of irresponsible in various ways. Juliet is also portrayed as kind of irresponsible. So there is that, That through line in Shakespeare, you know, not having read the Arthur Brooke poem and not really intending to either, there is an interesting, it seems like, remix of the themes and morals here where that's present, but there's also a lot more uh, sympathy for the situation, I think, and and pathos and the way he portrays them amid their relatives, who interestingly enough, I mean, Tybalt is sort of portrayed as a hothead and, you know, wild man type who just hates the other side almost blindly but it's interesting because the older generation seems to not really care all that much about the feud at all and in some ways even lord capulet when tybalt comes to him at the masked ball and is sort of saying hey uh that's romeo over there i want to go kill him for humiliating us by showing up at our party uninvited and lord capulet's like oh i hear he's a goodly youth i heard he's a nice he's a nice young man like let's not let's not you know." cause a lot of drama here let's yeah, not particularly worry about
1: after we've just been reprimanded by the prince and right
0: right yeah exactly so there might be an element of him just trying to avoid further legal problems for their house but there's also an element of him sort of saying Tibble, like simmer down romeo i've heard he's a, i've heard he's actually a pretty well-bred young man he's not really a problem you don't really get a sense of of what the feud is about which I think is sort of interesting with with some adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. I think of something like uh, West Side Story, which has like the Irish gang versus the Puerto Rican gang in New York. And there's sort of a social, ethnic, racial dynamic that is, you know, splitting them as much as everything else. And often, I think in modern adaptations, this is a way for people to work out divisions in society by showing that true love conquers all in some way, even if it has to be sort of relayed through the tragic sacrifice of two of the leading young people. So I think there's kind of enduring appeal, particularly today in our society, to this type of story, um, you know, amid all of our own issues and baggage, um, you know, historically.
1: Yeah. You know what's interesting, Will, on that subject? I think historically... Or, or in terms of those divisions, we usually think about, like, the social structures as, you know, sort of the older generation, maybe not the older generation, but, you know, there's a group of people who's invested in the feud and it tends to be the the downstream people who are, who are now living in the society who are mm-hmm. breaking at those barriers, whereas in this play, it's, it's sort of the opposite, right? Uh, yes, obviously, Romeo and Juliet are transported by their love beyond the feud, but... In this play, you're right. It feels like the older generation is not invested in the feud in the same way or maybe they're trying to put the feud behind them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's entirely true. And I think maybe maybe what it is, what what the what's what it gets at is is maybe this feeling that they're yes, the older generation maybe is trying to move past it, but there's a sufficient level of distrust that it takes very little for it to Boil over into violence, right? But also, the people who are really committed to it are the younger people, right? It's the servants in the opening scene, Mm -hmm. right? In that in that first brawl, it's Tybalt who sees Romeo and wants to go after him, Mm -hmm. and then it's also Mercutio who invites this fight with Tybalt later on. You know, right? So there's there's definitely an element here, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more when we're talking about this little band of friends, uh, Romeo, Mercutio, and Benvolio. But there's, I think, definitely a sense here of the hot-headedness of youth Mm -hmm. and how these younger people are acting out this feud and it's sort of mapping on to their own emotional needs in a way.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because in Shakespeare's Verona, everything is kind of consumed by this feud in a way. You don't really see much of life outside Mm -hmm. of these noble families and their preoccupations. And you don't get the sense that the young people have all that much to divert themselves, which is kind of a, an interesting commentary there. You know, you you don't really get a sense. Um, there's the pursuit of of women in the case of the band of young men, uh, but there's not really much else going on that you really see in the context of of the city, right? It's sort of like, this is the main thing and defining fact. And you almost get the sense that like the younger generation is invested in it because it's something to do and it's something that yeah. provides a bit of meaning to their lives in some ways. Not so much Romeo, who is fallen in love for the second time with a Capulet, but more with the tibble to the world. Um, Mercutio is kind of an interesting character, though. I mean, he's my favorite in the play and provides some of the best laugh lines, I think, along with the nurse. And he, he sort of fits into this in an interesting way He's sort of the best friend character along with Benvolio, but he's also rela- related to the prince, and he's not really, I don't think he's actually a Montague. He's just sort of affiliated with Romeo by friendship, and his sort of arc is a fascinating element of the story to me.
1: If he's related to the prince, you we have to assume that he's really in a higher social stratum than Romeo, Right. But he's made common cause with Romeo and Benvolio, presumably just because they're this gang of friends, and Benvolio is basically Romeo's retainer. Maybe that's maybe that's overstating it. I
0: do think they are related in some in some way. Ben, but I yeah, think it's Benvolio a- is Romeo's cousin.
1: Yes. Yeah. So and that's maybe the sense of the House of Montague, right? Mm-hmm. Where Romeo's the scion of this family, and I believe he's the only son of Lord Montague. Yes, that's right. But the extended Montague family is not limited to just Lord Montague and his wife and Romeo, right? It's not a nuclear family. It's sort of—it's this medieval-type feudal family of the family and the and the brother and the brother's children and their servants and retainers and all that. And
0: One might say a, a mafia family in a sense, right? You have all of these distaff branches, retainers, foot soldiers— People that sort of live in the same quadrant of the city as you, so on and so forth, who might owe their livelihoods to you and so forth. There's kind of, that—that's that's the the kind of dynamic you see. But
1: I think, yeah, I think this is just an obvious transition point to talk about this band of, band of brothers, if you will. They're not (laughs) actually brothers, but. So you've got Benvolio and Romeo, who are cousins, and then you've got Mercutio, who's We don't know exactly what his relationship to the prince is. Presumably, a nephew or Mm. or like a second cousin once removed, or something like that. And they're they're all running together. And I couldn't help but think, Will, in in the context of what you were saying about how there's not that much for them to do. You know, there's that line when I think it's when they get Tybalt's letter to Romeo, challenging him to a duel. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know if it's exactly, if it's, if this is the same scene, but I think it is. And Benvolio has that line is like, the day is hot, the Capulets are abroad. If we meet them, we shall not escape a brawl. And there is the sense that these people, the, you know, that these young men are sort of just wandering around the city in packs with nothing to do but fight each other.
0: Well, and I think this is actually what West Side Story gets at to a degree, right? And why I, yeah, and actually, you know, the martial arts sort of movie, um, Romeo Must Die, they kind of fit into this appropriation of this storyline and putting it in sort of modern gangs, you know, in a city fighting one another. And I think there's an element of, of truth there to the way these guys are behaving.
1: When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a jet, let them do what they can. You've got brothers around, you're a family man.
0: But yeah, as a pack of friends, it's interesting, though. You get the sense they grew up in the same block or same family, broadly construed, and they've been hanging out, going and kind of doing their own thing. They clearly like to talk, and they all have different personas. I think Benvolio is kind of the level-headed one in a lot of respects. Romeo is sort of head over heels and very earnest. Yeah, I think but emo, also emo. Emo is
1: the word you used. Yes, emo before. is emo
0: is definitely is definitely the way I've described him to you while discussing this play previously. Very much easily in and out of love, and then Mercutio is the cynic, and in some ways the most verbally adept of all of them in terms of puns, jokes, kind of a class clown. He, he's a
1: bit of a nihilist. Yes, he is you know, that too. Uh um, kind of Cynic.
0: Yeah, and he also is uh definitely the crudest of them, but he disguises his cleverness and lewdness in a series of very elaborate puns that would have made more sense mm-hmm. to Shakespeare's audience, but once you sort of get into the play and you start realizing that pretty much everything is a sexual pun that he says becomes very enjoyable.
1: And, <laughs> this this gets into kind of why I was interested in talking about this particularly, which is that it's really in the first two, two and a half acts maybe that you get this group of young men. And I felt like it actually, it is a Renaissance representation of this idea, but it actually felt very true to me of these groups of male friends at adolescent or immediately post adolescent who, I mean, well, almost certainly not unlike our own group of friends in college and maybe immediately after college, who you know, aren't truly adults yet. And to some degree, it feels like Romeo's falling in love is his passage out of adolescence into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And that sort of fractures the friend group. But you see in like the way they talk to each other, Romeo's super emo at the beginning. And Benvolio basically says, you got to forget about Rosaline. Let's go to this ball. You can check out some other hot chicks. Yeah, yeah. You know, Romeo, how am I, you know, how am I ever going to recover Benvolio's response is, by giving liberty unto thine eyes, examine other beauties, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. Other fish in the sea.
1: And Uh, there's a sense of, like, young men behaving in deliberately risky behavior because it's exciting and they get a thrill out of it. But also they're sort of testing the bounds of society together and, like, figuring out what they're going to do. And this is
0: very much what leads to Mercutio's death, Right, And his irritation with Romeo is that Romeo is, for once, maybe behaving somewhat responsibly by not rising to Tybalt's bait in the square when Tybalt challenges him. And Mercutio is, one, annoyed by Tybalt for being so in-your-face and so extra, but he also is annoyed at Romeo and basically says, like, you're, you're going to take this lying down. That's absurd. This isn't the way we roll, basically, as a group. And he is fighting Tybalt to kind of avenge Romeo's honor, but also the honor of the group and the pack of friends, right? So there is very much like that pack mentality of these guys. And uh, I do think it's interesting to note that they're pushing the boundaries. Mercutio is engaging in incredibly risky behavior, and not really caring what the consequences are until he gets stabbed.
1: And I think also the way that these guys talk to each other felt very real to me in sort of the context of these male friendship groups.
0: Don't run, run, hot,
1: <laughs> we must have you dance. Not
0: I, not I believe <laughs> me. You have dancing shoes with nimble soles. I have a soul of lead. (laughs) You are a lover. Borrow Cupid's wings and soar with them above a common bound. Under love's heavy burden do I sink. Too great oppression for a tender thing. Is love a tender thing? It is too rough, too rude, too boisterous, and it pricks like thorn. If love be rough with you, be rough with love. Prick love for pricking and you beat love down.
1: These guys clearly have a lot of affection for each other, but the way they talk to each other is often taking the piss out of each other.
0: Yes, it's, yeah, it's insult comedy, basically. You know, basically. like
1: Mercutio is always making fun of Romeo for being in love. And for that matter, Benvolio is as well. And Romeo does the same thing, right? When Romeo describes Mercutio to the nurse as basically a guy who likes to hear himself talk.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, so
1: you, you get that sense of young male friends who are rolling their eyes at each other at the same time that they have each other's backs, you know? Yes. Yeah, um, exactly. And that was, I, I don't know, I find that I found that very appealing just as kind of reflecting my own experience of young male friendship. And, you know, that so it's, it felt like something that was resonating from Shakespeare's time to, d- to today, even in a, just a different mm-hmm.
0: form. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think that it's kind of a natural pattern to emerge throughout history and in different contexts, And I actually left uh, reading this play wishing we had a little bit more Mercutio-Benvolio-Romeo interaction. Because I feel like you almost... um you almost miss that later on in a way. It needs to end, both thematically and structurally, for the play to move forward. But it's definitely enjoyable to watch and as I said, provide some of the, the funnier moments and Yeah, you d-
1: kinda just want to hang out with them. Right. It, it kinda
0: bit. made me feel a little bit like aspect of of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino film, not in an uncomplicated way, because I recognize that those characters are not great people in many respects, but you sort of enjoy hanging out with them and watching yeah. these guys it's like oh yeah like i'd watch them get into trouble and and do dumb and questionable things uh, in the furtherance of their ridiculous pursuits of line women and song that would be yeah. that would be entertaining to me it's interesting cuz the play sort of hits the accelerator after romeo and juliet get married which is relative feels relatively early on actually i mean there is there is not all that much wooing there is the scene at the party where Romeo first encounters Juliet.
1: Romeo comes on real strong in that scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's actually I not, amazing. I could not believe it reading it. I was like, wow, Romeo is just going for it here.
0: Almost immediately, right? There's a. He basically just. He basically sees is her. like, let's
1: make out <laughs> immediately. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. No, it's almost exactly. <laughs> if I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. <laughs> My lips, two blushing pilgrims ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Okay, so that's, I think, pretty much the first thing he says to Juliet, ever. And she's into it. She's into it. I mean, and granted, she's game. But it's funny because the, immediately previously, Romeo sees her from across the room and is trying to figure out who she is uh, and goes over and, and starts chatting with her. But it's amazing because in his friends are commenting on how ridiculous it is that he sees this girl and completely switches the object of his affection in like two seconds flat. Like he is moping around about Rosaline and then just switches gears and is like, "Oh,
1: yeah, Swipe, I think swipe right a real on Juliet. Question <laughs> here of how sincere Romeo is. You know, is his passion for Juliet just another? You know, is it is it just a rebound in the way that Benvolio has been pushing him to find a rebound, or is it sincere? I personally tend to fall on the feeling that for this play to work. You just have to buy into the idea of love at first sight. Yes, yes. You know, I think you just have to accept that this play only works if Romeo and Juliet literally see each other across a room and fall in love.
0: Yeah, I think if you don't feel that way about it, it takes on a completely different valence. And it's more of the interpretation that Romeo and Juliet are idiots and that young love will ruin them and potentially their families right and i don't think that that is the direction shakespeare is ultimately taking with this play and certainly not the way he resolves things so yeah i completely i completely agree though i do think it's interesting that he lets it sit that romeo being flighty and ridiculous is still part of the story and still something that his friends are commenting on. And of course, Romeo's behavior does ultimately have some tragic consequences. So it, it is a tragedy, not just because the two of them die, but because other people die, like Mercutio, to a lesser extent like Tybalt, like Paris, who's not really involved in the action at all. So yeah, I think like love at first sight is essential if you want to ultimately feel that the play has a satisfactory ending uh, in the final speech. But you can still find the themes and threads of Romeo being a slightly ridiculous figure because that's certainly how his friends mm-hmm. see him in the play.
1: Well, and of, of you know, the two, you, you certainly couldn't read it as them acting very rashly. Juliet is not portrayed in that sort of emo, almost mocking way that Romeo is. But it's not that hard to, to read her as an extremely young woman who is... Dealing for the first time with incredibly strong emotions and letting those emotions get the best of her rather than behaving rationally. Yes. You know, and maybe rational action isn't what we should expect in this context, but perhaps more tempered action would not be that unreasonable.
0: Yes, expect. I think that would be that would be fair. I mean, also notable, right? That we don't really get a sense, I think, of how old Romeo is, but Juliet's fourteen, so it's a very, um, very interesting. Very interesting portrayal of that, too, of like, these are, these are probably people so young that they haven't really had a chance to come to grips with serious emotions of almost any kind yeah. to date. And things accelerate quickly in the plot after he sees her at the party and then goes to the famous balcony scene where he woos her and they pledge to marry. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? And then pretty I had forgotten you know this is maybe the second or third time I read this play, and obviously seen some depictions on screen and on stage of it. i had forgotten how quickly it advances to them going to Friar Lawrence to get married, and how quickly things sort of start coming undone after that that was sort of an interesting an interesting observance for me In yeah, marching. I
1: mean, I think they they basically they meet at the ball and then there's the balcony scene and then they get married yeah. it's an in- Whirlwind romance doesn't even begin to describe it, I don't think. Yeah. And you know, but to be fair, I think also that's part of why the play like the play kind of has to have it crunched down to that level of time to Mm -hmm. work narratively, even though when you think about it rationally, it doesn't seem realistic. You know? And we'll we'll get to this in the end. I think this is something that's worth talking about a little bit more. When we get to talking about where this stands in Shakespeare's overall of, before we get to that, I think Will, you were talking about how it accelerates quickly towards the end, and that made me want to shift our gears to talking about the social and political project of this play, because going back to something we were talking about in when we were talking about the you know, why this play and this type of story has resonance. I think this play clearly has a pretty significant political dimension. And I don't mean political in like Republicans versus Democrats or, you know, yeah. I don't mean that in a policy sense. I mean that in a sense of how we relate to each other in society. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you've got the Capulets and the Montagues who are feuding and then Romeo and Juliet fall in love and almost from the get-go, right? Romeo goes to Friar Lawrence and he says, I'm in love with Juliet and Friar Lawrence is like, aha, <laughs> this is how we can resolve this feud. And then ultimately the piece that, you know, I think at the end, the prince says, you know, this, this morning a glooming peace with it brings, or I'm not getting the line quite right, but um, you know, the prince makes reference To the fact that peace between the families and therefore in Verona has only been achieved by the sacrifice of Romeo and Juliet. So there's uh, a a political and social context that I want to talk about, particularly because once you get past Act Three and Romeo's banishment, I feel like Shakespeare—this is a bit of a hot take— I feel like Shakespeare almost loses interest in Romeo and Juliet, like in the love story and in Romeo and Juliet's travails and he just like wants to get to the end so he can resolve it. Um, what do you think about that?
0: I don't know. So I don't know that I agree. I think I, mean, I think he has, he saves some pretty powerful moments and scenes for their deaths, right? And I, I know that it's been staged in different ways, but the scene of Juliet waking up to Romeo dead beside her. Tremendous pathos in that scene. I think you really are meant to feel the tragedy uh, and watch the setup of the tragedy. The missed messengers or the delayed messengers. You sort of see the whole thing coming undone before you. And I don't know. I feel like there still is a there still is a heavy focus on Romeo and Juliet as people. I do think the Friar Lawrence character though does speak to what you're saying in that he in some ways is the instrument by which a lot of the events of the play happen. And that's not necessarily ultimately a good thing for Romeo and Juliet if you care about their lives in the play because by facilitating Their desire to be together, he ends up setting up a situation whereby they both end up dying. I mean, that's not directly his fault, of course, but there is this desire by him to reach this resolution between the two warring families, and he offers some questionable and highly contingent and (laughs) dangerous plots to help advance that goal through these two young people. So I do think that there is that that attention, but I think you're meant to feel the tragedy of not only their deaths, but also Juliet wanting to remain faithful to Romeo and not marry Paris, even though she's being set up to do that. So I, I feel like there's a lot of attention to the anguish and it's actually, in some ways, it's not hard to read per se, but it um, I felt a fair amount of pathos for them and their situation. Uh, as time continued, particularly Juliet.
1: Mm -hmm. There's also something to it about the inadequacy of the prince's response. Mm. There's something about the inability, and I don't know if it's about the strength of the feud is stronger than the civil authorities, but you definitely get a sense of the impotence of the prince. And I kind of wonder, like, what is the prince doing that he can't get these families to stop killing each other? Yeah. The thing with Juliet and Paris... I mean, I, I mostly remarked on that for the totally pragmatic and sort of cold-blooded response of the nurse. Mm. You remember where? Yes, yeah. Where yeah. she's basically like, "Romeo's gone. You got to marry Paris. That's what you got to <sighs> do." After having really helped Juliet and advanced her her romance with Romeo. Yeah, I, I guess I see what you're saying. You know, when we get to the death scene. Shakespeare has no interest, really, in giving the lovers a final moment together, right? And the deaths happen so quickly, and I think that's what I was responding to. Yeah. Just feeling that he wasn't that interested in their deaths or, or in what's going on with them, and that everything else felt like it was just driving towards the conclusion yeah, so that we could have that, you know, that ultimate... Resolution it is a feud.
0: it is an interesting set piece the way they die and actually you know I was doing a little reading before we sat down to record and one of the ways that people have staged this uh, in the past and I think this is goes back at least to the mid 1700s where Romeo drinks the poison and Juliet wakes up while he is still alive and the poison hasn't yet taken effect and they have this mm-hmm. moment of recognition that he is dying and that it's just a moment too late. Instead of the way Shakespeare actually portrays it, which is Romeo dies, Juliet awakes. There's no sort of fleeting glimmer of recognition.
1: Yeah, there's no final connection.
0: And and obviously Shakespeare chose to do it this way. I mean, I, I think the other staging, I think that's a totally acceptable choice by a director, but it is not kind of the way... Shakespeare chose to write it, which is an interesting, an interesting element here, because I do think there's something to what you're saying about how he wants to resolve this. I feel like you're meant to find it incredibly tragic that it happened that way. I, you know, I can't really speak to why he would choose to do it in such a way where they don't see one another. Um, or have that glimmer of recognition that things have gone horribly awry and they were brought together only to only to die. And yeah. of a cruel twist of fate. And,
1: you know, it may be something that really doesn't come across as well in the reading and does come across better in the staging. Mm-hmm. You know, There's this actually this, that. Yeah, the, oh, no, go, uh, say, say no, no, I was saying. just
0: going to say, I think um, a lot really depends on this play. A lot of this play really depends on the strength of the performances of Romeo and Juliet. You really need the actors to sell this to make it work. The compression of the time at the beginning from sort of true love, uh, love at first sight, to their untimely deaths. You really need some very talented actors to sell the tragedy of this I think because especially in a modern audience because otherwise I don't think it's going to work and it's going to come across as sort of odd disingenuous unrealistic um you know hammy. Will
1: will would you believe that I actually have some direct experience on this subject
0: Oh do, do tell do because tell the,
1: one of the first no literally the first movie I got a credit on when I went when I moved to Los Angeles was I I worked at a company called Echo Lake Entertainment, and at the time they were producing an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, which you can watch starring Haley Steinfeld as Juliet. And frankly, the movie does not work. Uh, (laughs) And there's, I think, many reasons for that. But one of the main reasons that it doesn't work is that There really isn't great chemistry between Haley Steinfeld and Douglas Booth, who plays Romeo. (laughs) And I think you're absolutely right. Unless there is that tremendous spark, you know, sort of Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts, Notting Hill Hill, type spark, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that in some instances, right, you can do this play in different ways. I mean, I mentioned Boz Lerman. Lerman Lerman, sort of in his almost like MTV adaptation of the play, which I think is actually quite interesting in its, own, in its own way. You have Claire Danes, QP doll, like big eyes, you know, emotional cry face. And it really kind of works for the aesthetic he's kind of going for as sort of this ingenue, never really been in love, but being wooed. And then you have DiCaprio who... I don't know if he works quite as well, but he, he in that mode, uh, when he was sort of young and baby-faced, I think it, I think it works a little bit better. You know, he could sell you a little bit on it, uh, as he was able to do, I think, even more effectively in Titanic. So you, you need, regardless of how you're going to portray these people, you need them to, to have that chemistry, or at least have kind of a a vibe about them that makes you intrigued and want to watch more. And they need to be able to put that into dialogue together in some way. And if you've got people that are wooden, it's not going to work. Even if it's not a perfectly matched Romeo and Juliet, you need them to both bring something to the table and have it be at least reasonably plausible.
1: Yeah, And, and, and this is one of those situations where it's actually less about how good they are as actors and more about the energy between them. You know, one last thing on the politics issue of this will that I, that I think is also a good transition into talking about the overall placement of this play in Shakespeare's progression, and you know what we think this play says about Shakespeare's growth as an artist is the way that Shakespeare portrays this event as basically blowing out the feud right? The feud, mm. the feud blows itself out in the death of Romeo and Juliet. In the words of the prince, I'm just going to, this is like I th- almost the final words in the play. The prince says, Where be these enemies? Capulet, Montague. See what a scourge is laid upon your hates that heaven finds
0: means to kill your joys with love.
1: And I, for winking at your discords, too, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished. So there's the sense that the, you know, that the feud has resulted in the deaths of Romeo and Juliet, and now now Montague and Capulet agree that they'll that they're going to raise statues of the other person's child and join hands, and the feud will be over. Um, <laughs> and i saw in this a very concentrated version of the whole henry the 6th progression right mm. we, and we talked a lot about when we were talking about the henry the 6 plays we talked a lot about the feeling that events are set in motion that can only end at least in the world as rendered by the play with everyone dying and a new world being born out of the ashes, mm-hmm. right? That, that world has to sort of self-immolate in order for a better world to, to come into being. And in this play, it seemed to me that Shakespeare was really working with the same set of ideas, but mm. rendering it in a slightly more mythological and concentrated way using the Romeo and Juliet story
0: yes and in some ways by making the eradication of the old order a little bit more concentrated in romeo and juliet you remove the ridiculous bloodbath quality of titus andronicus or some of the other history plays right where it's truly like the the deck needs to be swept clean of almost everybody you've seen in the play to begin again i think in in this case It's actually all the more moving that he concentrates it and personalizes it in Romeo and Juliet.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so to me, I feel like this play, one, it feels like it represents, plotting-wise, a real step forward. Yes. You know, where it's very perfectly constructed. But additionally, he's dealing with similar ideas that he's dealt with in the past, but doing so in a more sophisticated way. And in a more concise way.
0: Yeah. So first, I would say this play shows, in a similar way to Richard III, it shows Shakespeare finally having a toolbox that is full of tools, both for tragedy, comedy, some of the more historical tragedy that he's worked with. And he's able to bring them to bear in more interesting and sophisticated ways. So you have this sort of doubling of some of the characters, but you also have a little bit more complexity and character development. You know, they have different personalities, certainly Romeo, Vice, Benvolio, or Mercutio. You have Tybalt, the hothead. So there's a little bit more characterization going on. There's also the use of plot devices, uh, certainly there
1: are duels. On that note, Will, there's definitely a feeling that he's doing a lot more with less. Yes. He's succeeding in developing characters with much less exposition and needing much less space to do it. And there, I don't know if we're going to be able to get into it in this podcast, but I think there's a whole thing of world building in this play that is really effective, mm-hmm. and that helps move that forward. But yeah, anyway, I digress, yeah. continue. No,
0: no, I think I think he he takes... Elements of that, and I think you can see that particularly in Henry VI, Part Two, where he builds a world that feels very lived in and fleshed out, right? But, you know, he also uses some of the devices for plot, like messengers getting mixed up or delayed as a means of advancing the plot. And he uses them, things that he might have learned while writing a comedy, he is transferred to a tragic setting even down to the sort of, like, ribaldry and sex humor that he uses in this as sort of comic relief, particularly from the nurse and Mercutio. You've seen that multiple times in prior plays, and here he uses it, I think, to quite good effect. And the play is not all that long, so it is, it is super concentrated, to your point. And I think he's finally using all of these different... Tools, Whether it's in characterization, whether it's in plotting, whether it's sort of thematic structure, and it's much more impressive in that way. Whatever other plays people consider to be better than Romeo and Juliet in the sort of Shakespeare canon, this one I do think deserves some recognition for being very sophisticated and very potent. And I think that's a reason why people continue to enjoy it and like it too, is it actually is firing on all cylinders in a lot of respects as a piece of drama. And it's a testament to his growth in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. So one thing we've talked a lot about with regard to past plays, Will, is there's this movement in those early plays that I think sort of terminating with Richard III, although maybe even Richard III begins to move a little bit beyond this, where there's this overriding sense of pessimism Mm. and misanthropy. And so in in addition to his technical move forward in this play, I think it's also continuing on something we talked about in, particularly in Love's Labor's Lost, which is there's still a view of the darkness of human nature Mm. in this play, but it's mixed in, I think, with more compassion and with more of a sense of like, but people do good things too. Yeah, affection in a way.
0: I think for the foibles of the characters, it's a much more humane play. And I do think it is shot through with some pathos, even though there is the ridiculousness of some of the characters along the way.
1: Will, before we advance to ranking the play and sort of wrapping up the episode, can I share with you a little theory I have? Please. About this play?
0: Theorize.
1: (laughs) So my grand unifying theory of Shakespeare at this moment is that Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Taming of the Shrew, and Romeo and Juliet are all taking place in the same timeline. So, for instance, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, there is a reference to a Friar Lawrence who is wandering through the woods doing penance, who recognizes, I think it's Valentine who he recognizes, but whatever. We don't meet this Friar Lawrence, but he is referred to at one point in the play, and he's referred to as walking through the woods doing penance. (laughs) What for? Maybe it could be for facilitating the death of Romeo and Juliet. In Romeo and Juliet, there's a reference made at the party scene by Capulet to the marriage of one Lucentio that happened 30 years prior. Could it be the same Lucentio who appears (laughs) wooing Bianca and gets married to Bianca at the end of The Taming of the Shrew? Possibly. (laughs) Additionally... There is a person who's referred to in this play by the name of Petruchio, who is seen leaving the ball. Could it possibly be the son of Petruchio and Kate, also from (laughs) The Taming of the Shrew, who, as we know, Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew comes from Verona? Maybe. I'm not going to say there's any deeper significance to it, but... I am going to say that I like it. The
0: expanded Shakespeare universe. I uh, I love it. I love it. What we really need is Shakespeare's villains and heroes to fight one another in an epic battle across the expanded universe. Uh, that is really what will bring Shakespeare back, I think, in the 21st century.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Will, ranking the play. Where are you going to put this one in your rankings?
0: Good question. I think uh, this is going to be in top tier for me. I think I like it a little less than Richard III, though I do think it's stronger on some axes than Richard. I think I might put it second, actually. Number two? Yeah.
1: All right. I I am still going to place it below Love's Labor's Lost, which is Mm. my current number two. So it'll be my number three. I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's, probably the most perfectly constructed play of the ones we've read so far. I just, so R- Richard III for me remains sort of the the one that is simultaneously the most deep and interesting and also the most entertaining. Mm-hmm. And Love's Labor, you know, the ending of Love's Labor's Lost, I think has more, does more for me personally yeah. than does the ending of Romeo and Juliet. I'd
0: agree, I'd agree with, the, with the ending of Love's Labor's Lost being more poignant to me in some respects as like, a person who is not in a uh, star-crossed relationship and about to drink a dram full of potent poison. Okay. Love's labor's lost, much more realistic and uh, poignant in its own way. So, yeah, I, I understand yeah. that. That That's number three for you, ultimately?
1: So, uh, Romeo and Juliet becomes my number three, becomes your number two, it sounds like. Right. Yeah, that's and right. uh And just, just our business on this, MVP of this one? Uh, Mercutio. For me as well. I feel like there's a lot of talk about how Juliet is so great. I don't think Juliet's like that much more fleshed out or interesting than Romeo. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercutio admittedly is a very, is like a smaller role. But nonetheless, I think given, given like I don't think there's any one character who really overshadows the play in its totality. And in that context, I think I feel yeah. comfortable saying it's Mercutio. I,
0: I feel I feel comfortable with that judgment as well.
1: Will, before we wrap up, anything you want to plug or anything that you're reading or watching that you're yes,
0: enjoying? Yes, I, uh, I would love to plug a novel that I finished reading just the other day. It just came out. It's by an author named Matt Gallagher. I believe it's his second or third novel, and it's called Empire City. And the premise of it is the U.S. won the war in Vietnam— and now has 60 states, but has been involved in endless wars in the Mediterranean. And the story more or less it follows these veterans and civilians in New York City. And it's really about sort of the divide in this kind of near-futuristic America between veterans and civilians in a society that venerates military figures Um, but doesn't really understand their experience. And in a a world that's highly militarized, there are elements of it that are clearly very funny and very comedic. Like There's a lot of uh, the ending of when people discuss the war, they say, praise be to the warfighter, something along those lines, right? Absurd stuff like that. Uh, And at the same time, there's lots of... You want to talk about world building. He creates this incredible world where a lot of the veterans that are severely damaged by their experience in the war have post-traumatic stress they're shipped off to what are called um i think veterans colonies where they're just like sent to the beach and like heavily medicated so it's very dark very compelling very interesting book and uh great exercise in world building reimagining the second half of the 20th century in a in a kind of crazy and and well-done way
1: Cool. And just tell us one more time, what's the title and the author?
0: Empire City by Matt Gallagher.
1: And that's our show. Tune in next time for our show on Shakespeare's first major comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us an always glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bard Flies on Twitter and drop us a line at Podcast at gmail.com.